morning. My name is Jordan, and I have the opportunity of, of serving as the local pastor in our NDG congregation. But I'm not an NDG this morning, am I? People are quiet. <laughs> it's good to be downtown. I'd invite you, if you have your Bible, to follow with me. And we're going to begin with a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 11, and verse 36. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And, then being, and that being from God, it has, as author, he has author, authority in our lives and defines reality for us. Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. For from him, him referring to God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is a sweeping theological statement about the nature of reality. And the question that I want to start with you I'll start with you with, rather, um, is does this include sex? Does the all things being referred to here include sex? Yes, responsive in the front row. It does. Sex is from him and through him he sustains our very breast and to him. And we're like, like, what? How so? How is sex from him? For what reason? What is the intention or the purpose of sex being from God? Huh? It's a question we're going to be looking at uh, today. And I can imagine that some of you hear that and inside you cringe. You just cannot imagine how your sex life and God could ever be a good thing, bringing those two things together. And others of you, you're not cringing. You're actually in pain. You are in pain because of what some pastor said at some point in time about what was happening sexually in your life or that of another. And if there's one thing I want to show you today, and I do not want you to miss, is that it is this, that God defining sex is actually, believe it or not, a good thing. It is a very good thing. That Christianity, rather than debasing sex and having a low view of sex, rather infuses it with value and meaning and purpose and that rather than, because of this, leaving you in pain and in shame, God defining sex is a good thing, and it is life-giving and liberating. Those are big claims, aren't they? I understand. Some of you are going to have a hard time believing that. And so I get to have the rest of our time, albeit short, today unpacking that for us. As you know, by now, we're in this series called September. I don't know if you saw, there might have been some cards that you got coming in or on a table somewhere. You're invited to take these, hand them out to your friends as you will. September. Today, we're looking at sex. Next week, singleness and uh, dating. The week after, sexuality and gender. And then the final week of it, porn. 
And I want to remind you, as I list these things off, you're like, whoa, porn and gender and sexuality. These are not issues out there. We are not talking about issues out there. We are talking about people in here. These are deeply personal issues, and I want to say I understand that. and I want to honor that. Speak to that. But know this. We speak to it because the gospel, we believe, is good news. It is always good news at all times and in all places and for all people, all sex and gender included. It is always good news. Do you believe that? You believe it is actually good news in these conversations? I assure you it is. And because it's good news, we want to bring it with compassion and conviction. And so I'd urge you to stick with us over the next month. And if, you know, there comes a point in this where you're like, ah, no, stick with it. I might missay something. I'll be at the back after, and we can do a Q and R together. Please don't leave upset. But let's get into it. I'm going to do this in three moves. Sex is a good gift of God, but it is a bad master, and it's Jesus who sets us free. It's a good gift, but a bad master, Jesus sets us free. First, sex is a good gift of God. Question for you, does the church have a bad rep when it comes to sex? Are we viewed as sexually repressive? Yes. And without getting into all of the reasons for that, that perception, impression can leave you, sorry, with the perception. That impression can leave you with the perception that God is against sex itself. That sex itself is a bad thing. That is not true. Okay? Let me show you. The Bible begins with the story of a man. It's a strange story. He's placed in a garden. It's this life-permitting environment And he's there with animals, and yet he feels alone. And I'll dive into the story if you have your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 21. Man is alone in verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, operation, (laughs) closed up its place with flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, so here you have God doing this operation. He brings her to the man, companionship, and the man sees her, and he's like, what's this? And he sort of sings this little jig. That's verse 23. He's like, she's like me, but she's different. She's like me. We are of the same ribbed nature. We are both equally created by God and therefore due of dignity and respect. She's like me, but she's also different. Woman, not man. Notice then here, God did not create asexual species. We cannot reproduce with ourselves. She's like me, but she's different. Adam's little jig. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You like me, called woman. And then you see the culmination of this in verse 24 and 25. A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And so here you have this sort of happy naked love scene. Nice, right? 
if you got theological gears turning in your head, I want to emphasize that this is before what we call the fall, before problems came in, before paradise was lost. God says, make babies, and he calls it a very good thing. You see then from this that sex is not a bad thing. God is not against sex. He designed it. He created it. It was his idea. Like we saw with that first scripture, scripture, Romans eleven thirty six. Sex is from him. Now you can already see from this story, strange be it, some of the intentions or the purposes for sex beginning to come out. I'm going to give them to you in four P's. The four P's of purpose, if you want. This morning, people got a little bit eager and they tried to guess them. You want to try and guess them? It's going to be theologically kind of heavy. Why don't you, what, what do you think are the, is the intention of sex that starts with a P? Pleasure. Boom. Number one. On the money. First P. Pleasure. <laughs> pleasure. Yes, that's good. Pleasure is good because it reflects a God who is our greatest pleasure, who delights in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first P is for pleasure. Second P. Anybody? Procreation. <laughs> there you go. That like God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, share of themselves for eternity. And it's out of that sharing of themselves, there's an overflow of love. And out of the overflow of love comes creation. You and I, the product of an overflow of love. So like God shares love and is able to create, so too you and I share love with each other. And there is the possibility of life there. Not the necessity, the possibility. That's important. I have three children, Hazel, Jackson, and Sophie. They were not necessary, but they were possible. Pleasure, procreation, promise. That like God who, through the Bible, you see, the story of the Bible is of a God who covenants himself to his people. He is faithful when we are faithless. Like God is like that. So we too promise ourselves to each other wholly for better or for worse in sickness and in health. Sex then becomes a physical expression of a whole of life promise that we have already made. That what we do with our body, we've already done with our whole lives. We've promised them. Promise, procreation, pleasure, and then finally, praise. You notice with each one of these, I've been like God, so like us, right? Why? Because we are created in his image to reflect him. And so those first three, pleasure, procreation, and promise, by living that out, we reflect some of the nature and attributes of God. In other words, then, life is not about sex. It's so much bigger than that. It's not about you. Life is not about you or about sex. It's about God. God is for God, and our lives are meant to reflect that. Praise, promise, procreation, pleasure, the four Ps of sex. I hope you can see now then that in contrast to a world without God, when God is stripped out of the equation with him, we are in his image. What are we then left with? Well, we sort of like look within ourselves, pleasure, 
yeah, maybe self-validation or self-worth, something like that. We look outside and around survival of the species. Do you see now what I'm saying? That Christianity, rather than debasing sex and having a low view of it, actually infuses it with value, meaning, and purpose? You see that in this account in verse 25, the man and wife both naked and unashamed, this happy naked love scene. Man, they're giving themselves over to each other, their whole bodies and souls together. There's no fear there, just the safety of promise and commitment and joy of love. They are fully known. Everything about them is known and yet fully loved. Isn't that awesome? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Why isn't sex then experienced like that? This little happy naked love scene, commitment and joy and all this. Why isn't sex experienced that? Well, it's because that first move, well, sex is a good gift of God. Our second move, sex is a bad master. Sex is a bad master. If you become willing to give up anything for sex, everything for sex, maybe even compromise your relationship with God for sex, my friend, you have put it in the wrong place. See, I've been saying to you that Christianity raises up, honors, gives value, meaning, and purpose, fuses the sexual act. It does. But at the same time, our lives are not about sex. They're about God. And when you bring God into that equation, man, he relativizes the importance of sex. Totally. So God relativizes the importance of sex. He, put it, he puts it in context. He gives it boundaries in that way. And when we rightly order our loves with God at the top, then we flourish, we live, we are able to flourish within his boundaries, love him. But when we don't, the opposite occurs and we become enslaved and we get hurt and we hurt others. Let me give you three biblical examples of sex becoming a bad master and enslaving us. The first is David. This is a somewhat well-known story. David was a married man. And one day he sees a lady bathing on the roof of an adjoining home and he wants her. So he takes her, he impregnates her, and then he finds out. And he wanted to hide it, but the husband was at war for David. And so David arranges to have the husband killed, one of his top army generals. And he's hiding it. And David writes in Psalm 32, 3 and 4. He says this. He says, my bones wasted away within me. 32. Let me find it here. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My bones wasted away. Away. David left, he pursued these sexual desires and it left him feeling wasted away inside, racked with shame and guilt. Sex was a bad master for David. Our first story. And some of you hear this and you're like, well, Jordan, that's too bad for David. But the problem 
wasn't sex, actually, with David. The problem is that David lived in a culture that stigmatized sex. And so that's why he, why he felt shame. That culture did not stigmatize sex like you think. Let's talk about one of David's sons, Solomon, our second story. Solomon in the Bible is one of, described as one of the wealthiest and most wise kings that lived in the ancient world. He lived during a time of expanding peace and prosperity. He's known for the Proverbs. He wrote many of them. And yet, despite it, we see that Solomon was foolish when it came to pursuing love and desire. That Solomon had a thing for woman. Let me read to you from 1 Kings 11, where this starts uh, to become unpacked. 1 Kings 11 and verse 1. Solomon had this thing for woman. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, but also the Moabite, the, Moabite, the Ammonite, the Edomite, the Sidonian, the Hittite woman, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you lay, uh, they with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had, who's following? Say it. 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. I bring this in to say, Solomon did not have a problem with shame. What was Solomon's problem? One of the problems that you see from this text is that his heart was turned away. This was not God's will. And some of us think that we can be Christians, but what we do sexually does not matter. My friend, it will turn your heart away. What Jesus said about money, he would also say about sex. You cannot serve two masters. Sex is a bad master that will turn your heart away. That's one of Solomon's problems. But what was another one of Solomon's problems? Let's turn to Ecclesiastes, another thing he wrote. Chapter two, verse one of chapter two. I said in my heart, Solomon says this, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Drop down to verse eight. I gathered for myself, he says towards the end there, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And then keep going. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended doing it. And behold, it was all what? Vanity and striving after the wind. That like a breath on a cold winter's day, gone, gone. Exhaustion, meaninglessness, unfulfilled, sex with thousands of women, not feeling shame, still could not deliver on its promise. Sex had become a bad master. Sex is not a bad master just though in that it exhausts us like Solomon 
and leaves us racked in shame and guilt like David. Sex, when it is a bad master, always doesn't just hurt us, it hurts others. Third story. This is the story of Ammon. And I want to warn you that this is a horrific story of sexual violation. The story is often not preached. It's so terrible. But I bring it up today because it's relevant. Okay, we need to talk about this because this is way too real for way too many of you. And you're like, why would God include a story like this in the Bible? It's because God wants to show the end result when we make everything about sex when we make it the be-all, end-all of our lives, when we get caught up in that addictive narrative of sex and romance and make it the fulfillment and the identity of our whole lives and about self-love and pleasure and pursue it at all costs, it destroys. It doesn't just destroy you, it destroys others. Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Ammon, David's son, another one of David's son. Seeing a pattern here. Ammon, David's son, loved her, this beautiful woman. Verse 2, and Ammon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for Ammon to do anything to her. And so here you have Ammon absolutely obsessed about Tamar, but he can't have her. He's, he's infatuated. Verse 3 says that he's carrying that so much. He's so bought into that addictive narrative of sex and romance as identity and fulfillment that it actually, it shows on his face. He's become haggard. And one of his friends, who is not a good friend, sees the haggardness of his, his demeanor and says, yo, what's up? And he says, I want my sister. And he says, let's make a plan. And so they make this plan. He says, pretend to be sick. Invite her over. Say that what she's going to serve you will make you feel better, and it'll be a trap. And I'm not going to read all of the verses, but that's what Amon does. Let's drop down to verse 11. But when she, that's Tamar, brought them near, that's the food as part of the plan. So Tamar's bringing Amon this food, but when she brought them near him, Amon, to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, no. No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, how can I carry my shame? This almost echoes his voice. How can I carry my shame? Echoing through the ages. And then she pleads with him, as for you, you would be one of the outrageous fools of Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. She's grasping at straws, for he won't withhold me from you. But it says he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Sex had become a driving force in his life. And he was pursuing it at all costs. And it, he overpowers her. And then it says, this is a terrible story. It says in verse 15, and Ammon hated her with a great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Ammon said to her, get up, go. And she pleads with him again, and he says no, and he throws her out and bolts the door behind her. She is tossed out. 
question. Did he really love her? Come on, this should be obvious to us. No, not at all. You see the speed with which that love turns to hate and detest. That should be a clue to us with everything else. No, he did not love her. Not at all. Rather, he is wrapped up in selfishness and self-love. In fact, he is so wrapped up in that. He's pursuing it so hard as a master in his life and in his heart that it's blinded him to the point that he no longer sees Tamar made as a daughter in the image of God. He dehumanizes her so to the point that she becomes just an object of his consumption that he can eat up and spit out. Deplorable. <laughs> Guys, this is what happens when sex becomes a master in our life. It doesn't just hurt us. It hurts and dehumanizes and others. Okay. <laughs> We're about 3,000 years removed from this account. And we talk about progress a lot as a society. Do you think we've progressed in this? I don't think so. My friends, sex is a bad master. When we pursue it with everything we have, it will leave us like David, riddled with guilt and shame. It will leave us like Solomon, exhausted and questioning the meaning of life. And it will leave us like Ammon, dehumanizing people like Tamar. And so the question is, why would we ever do that? Why, if sex has this ability to become this master over our lives, would we ever seat at that position in our hearts right at the top? And my friends, the answer is because in the absence of a greater and more fulfilling and truer and more beautiful master, that's going to happen. I mean, think about it. Think about our cultural moment. We live in a moment and where with God removed, it's as if we've lost transcendence. It's as if the world above us, transcendence has closed down on us. The ceiling of reality has closed down on us. While at the same time, with broken families and crazy transients and, and just plain old individualism, it's as if the roots under us have been pulled out. And so there we are, nothing below, nothing above, compressed, and all that's left to give us value, meaning, purpose, identity, and fulfillment is us and our bodies and it can't do it it is a bad master and when you go to sex for those things when you go to sex to be your identity we start to hear things like this that who I am is who I am sexually and if you don't affirm me sexually then you don't affirm me or when we go to sex for fulfillment, we get things like 40-year-old virgin. The whole premise of this movie is that there's got to be something wrong with somebody who's 40 years old and never slept with anybody. Like, man, there's got to be something unhealthy about that. We need to help our friend find him somebody. Not having sex, you must not. There must be something wrong with you. You must not be living a fulfilled life. There must be something repressive and dehumanizing about that. You can't live a good life without sex. And you know what happens when you start to believe that narrative? You start to look like Amen. You start to go about life haggard. Okay? 
We go to sex for identity. We go to sex for, for fulfillment. We go to sex to complete us. And we wonder why we're getting hurt. My friends, sex is a good gift, but it is a bad master. And this is why we need Jesus, a better master. We need a master who sets us free from that shame and guilt. We need a master who heals us from our exhaustion and gives meaning to our lives. We need a master with whom we can be fully known and fully loved. And that, my friends, is Jesus. And it's only him that can set you free. Man, don't hear me saying this. It's not marriage that's going to set you free. And it's certainly not abstinence that's going to set you free. Those can't set you free. Neither can religion. Religion can't set you free. Man, David, Solomon, these were God-fearing dudes. Look what happened to them. And the same is true today. Sexual abuse continues to rifle the church. Marriage, abstinence, religion, right beliefs, that is. Those cannot set you free. You need Jesus to set you free. Only Jesus can set you free. Only Jesus can see you and know you and set you, remove your shame from you, set you free. Only Jesus. And one of the stories I love in the Bible is the one told in John 8. There's a couple that's caught sexually sleeping together. And, um, This woman is, only the woman, what do you know? Only the woman is brought by the religious leaders before Jesus. And religion would say this. It says, stone her. And that is the due course of the law. That she indeed is guilty. That sexual sin is wrong. And death is due. And yet, what do we see in this text in John 8? Jesus, he saw her. Jesus saw past these religious leaders in the mob, the pressure of that moment. He saw her. He saw her in racked with guilt and shame. He saw her exhausted by the relationship she had been through. He saw her in that moment. Her whole life laid bare, like violated before all of these people. Jesus saw her and he knew her. He knew what was going on. He knew her highs and her lows her joys and her pains. And he knew that what she had done was wrong. It was deserving of death. He saw her, he knew her, and yet he removed her shame. How did Jesus remove her shame? Remember, she was deserving of death, but what does Jesus say to her? Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And everyone's like, what? She's due death, and you say, go your way and sin no more? Suddenly, all of the focus and the shame projection spotlight that had been on this woman in her shame and her guilt was suddenly now shifted to Jesus. How could you ever say that? And how could Jesus ever say that? Because while religion says stone her, Jesus says, I'll take that stone for her. Jesus saw her, he knew her, and he set her free from shame. And that's what he did. He took that stone. He took that stone for you and for me. 
our selfish love, our self-facing love curled up in on themselves. Jesus wore that on to a cross. He took the full brunt of that beating for you. He knew exhaustion. He knew what it meant to be racked by guilt and shame, and his holy character was violated in that. So that what? So that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what the rest of that text says. So that you could be made holy before him. Praise God. Jesus has removed our sexual sin so that we could become holy and righteous in him. It doesn't matter what you've done. That is what is true. And he doesn't just set you free, my friends. He empowers you to live and love and serve him with your whole lives. His word and his instructions for sexuality included. That is possible in him. See, Jesus is what it's all about. It was never about sex. It was always about him. He's the one who matters. And when you encounter him as setting you free from your shame and empowering his empowering presence in your life, nothing else starts to matter. Everything else begins to pair in comparison. And you begin to see Jesus as the true and better husband who will never fail you. Jesus as the true and better master who will never violate you. Who doesn't take away and destroy your purpose, but heals and restores your purpose. Jesus is the true and better lover who fully knows you in all your flaws and weaknesses and sin, and yet fully loves you. My friends, that is what is true. And that is ultimately, that companionship is what it's about. Our little earthly marriages are but a dim reflection or metaphor of the greater and the truer marriage and companionship of life eternal with God. Do not ever lose sight of that, my friend. Is that amazing? You know, if I was to sum up what those four P's, the intention of sex are, in one, the four P's become servant. That like Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life for us, we too now, in response to him, become servants of him. And as servants of him, everything in our life becomes about service, including sex. And so sex then can become not something that is shameful and guilt-inducing or exhausting in meaninglessness and mind-numbing, but joyful, pleasureful, purposeful, in which you are fully known in those relationships or in your relationship and fully loved. That is possible. I hope you can see now how Christianity like I said at the beginning, does not demean, but raises up. It, gives, it fuses it with value, meaning, and purpose. And that Jesus doesn't leave you then sitting in shame and guilt, but liberates you and gives you life. And that Jesus as a relationship, as companionship, is more satisfying and compelling than any relationship you could ever have. My friends, the gospel is good news. It is good news. Now, let me try and apply this in two categories for us now. Marriage, singleness, marriage. What does it look like if I just say the intention of sex sums up in the word service? 
That means that marriage is not a call for sex, but a call to serve. Marriage is not a call for sex, but a call to serve. This means things like you should not punish each other by withholding it, and you should not reward each other by giving it. It is not about you. It is about service. Okay? It also means that marriage without sex for a season or time, although Paul doesn't advise that, is possible. That there will be seasons in your life, and this is very, very true and real, in which pain or operation or something not functioning makes sex impossible. And yet Jesus can carry you through. He is a greater joy, and it's him that it's about in serving in our marriages, okay? Let me speak to sex within a marriage. Set your expectations. Talk about it a lot. Work through the issues. Sex has this way, this physical way of exposing the deeper emotional things of the relationship. When that happens, don't repress and ignore. Talk about it. Work through it. And have fun. Don't forget about that one. You can be naked and unashamed. That's marriage, singleness, and dating. Let me say this, and we're going to get into this more in another week, next week. Serve Jesus and others with your clothes on. <laughs> Don't awaken love before it is time. The lie of this culture is that you need sex to have a fulfilled life. You need to stamp and crush that stupid lie. That is so not true. You do not need sex to have a fulfilled life. You need the joy and presence of God to have a fulfilled life. Paul didn't have sex and lived a fulfilled life. John the Baptist, Mother Teresa, Jesus himself, the most fully human person who ever lived. Did they not live fulfilled, meaningful, valuable lives? Reset your vision for what is possible. You can serve as a single person what you need is not sexual love. What you need is intimate love, and you can have that without sex. That's marriage and singleness. But before I end, this kept me awake last night. That I realize when I speak about a topic like this in a room like this, it is not lost on me. Deeply painful. Some of the things you are that you are carrying. And how hard it is to have been carrying them. And so before I end, I want to speak to that. I want to speak to the people who identify themselves with the characters of this text. And I want to do something different this morning. Okay? I want to call you to respond. That like for many of you, it was a, a posture of yourself that put you in this place, whether you did it against someone or someone sinned against you, it will be a posture of the heart that takes you out of this place.